Alright, saints, this morning is March 11th. It is 2007. Our message is The Rock and the Hard Place. Since most of us, actually this morning, all of us in here are Americans, right? We've got no foreign guests this morning. Judy hadn't made it yet. We uh, all know and have been taught who Thomas Jefferson is, right? If not, if you've ever seen the $20 bill, he's on it. I haven't seen one personally, but my wife tells me his picture is on there. Thomas Jefferson is known for an awful lot of things. Probably most famous for being the principal author of the Declaration of Independence. You all know that, right? He's also the first Secretary of State our country ever had. He's the second Vice President that our country ever had. And he's the third American President. This is a man appointed for his time. Does that make sense? When you look back at some of the great men who founded this country, you can look in their lives. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, for instance. The guy's creative abilities could have been given nowhere except by God. Everything from the money that is printed to the glasses Steve's wearing to the electricity floating through this room in some way can be traced to the man. Thomas Jefferson is the same way. He doubled the size of our country with the Louisiana Purchase. He commissioned Lewis and Clark to scout out what is now all the way to our West Coast. And he's the father of what has become known as Jeffersonian democracy, right? Have you all ever heard that when the presidential debates and things kick on? People say, uh, I'm a Republican in the order of Jeffersonian democracy, right? Well, they, they've all corrupted it pretty badly. One of the things that Jefferson triumphed in his life was a separation of church and state so that the state would not interfere in religion. He felt it was the best way for religion to be free. Now, that's been twisted around a little bit, and his words have used that to free the state from the influence of religion, which was never his goal. But Jefferson, I think we could all agree, is a pretty profound individual. In fact, in our lifetimes, or at least most of your lifetimes, John F. Kennedy referred to him in this way. He had gathered 49 Nobel Prize winners, who were all alive, obviously, to the White House, right? What a meeting of human intellect. What a meeting of fantastic human ingenuity. These are all Nobel Prize winners. And this is Mr. or President Kennedy's quote. It was in 1962. He said, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent and human knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined here alone. (laughs) This is a revered man. Now, I took you through all of that because our topic is rock and hard place. We're going to take this straight into the Bible and out of American history in just a moment. But I want you to know something. Recently, we had a congressman sworn in. Do you remember this debate? He was sworn in on a copy of the Koran. The quote from his campaign was that they were happy that they could have Mr. Ellison swear himself in on a copy of Jefferson's Koran. It was Thomas Jefferson's Koran because it proved to the world that even Thomas Jefferson was a visionary and that America was walking in his vision by having this done. Something about that just struck me as very, very wrong. Now, this is not a message on politics this morning, I promise we'll get to a place where we're talking about a rock and a hard place. I got a letter from Zola Levitt Ministries that clued me into some facts. Then I began to research them, found this in the Jerusalem Post and also the World Net Daily newspaper. Okay, so these are verifiable facts. Why did Thomas Jefferson have a Koran? When Thomas Jefferson was the Secretary of State, we faced a problem. In Algiers, in Tripoli, and in Morocco... They were Muslim pirates. These were not pirates in the traditional sense. They were not out to get drunk. They were not out to rape and pillage. They were pirates that were religiously motivated. They simply wanted to enslave people. Specifically, they wanted to enslave Christians. And Europe and America was the home of Christianity at the time. When Thomas Jefferson was the Secretary of State, they had to decide how to deal with this problem. John Adams and... Thomas Jefferson and two other people all met and decided that the best way to handle this was to pay tribute 
to them. We will buy American safety. They got this idea from the French. Large surprise there, right? By the time he had become president, Jefferson had obtained a copy of the Koran. When he became president, he became motivated in this fact. He said, after reading what he called in his diary the Muslim book of jihad, he was convinced there was no way to deal with these barbarian states other than through the medium of war. Thomas Jefferson had a copy of the Koran because he read it in preparation for sending the very first marine invasion of another country authorized by a United States president. Isn't that ironic? So well, why on earth am I telling you that this morning? Well, first, this marine invasion, you all know the song of the marines? From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Yeah, it lives on in our song even, but Americans have forgotten it. Thomas Jefferson was in a rock and a hard place. He had advocated warfare from the beginning. But by the time he read the Koran, he said there was no other way. America needed to decide in a very difficult place. A fledgling democracy had already agreed to give up 20% of our national gross revenues to these barbarian Muslim countries, right? Now he's in a place where all of his constituents are crying for appeasement. All of the Europeans are crying for appeasement. He had to search his heart and find what was the right thing to do. He was in a rock and a hard place. They freed American sailors trapped in Tripoli. Successful marine invasion. America never again paid tribute to a Muslim country till perhaps recent times. Often in Christianity we find ourselves in the same situation. A huge force working within you, pushing you to appease either your own sinful nature or the image of the world that is trying to be forced upon you. We need to read our holy book. We need to search our hearts and make our stand. We need to decide what is God and what is not. Incidentally, in the near future, we're going to teach on Islam some more because I keep hearing in Christianity, even among educated circles, things that are not true. Like Islam is basically like Judaism. They honor the Old Testament and Abraham. Nothing could be further from the truth. Thomas Jefferson said it, and it's still true today. The Koran is a Muslim book of jihad, what they consider themselves to be the sword of God. What is worse is this day of Algiers who America paid off when we were in our infancy was taught by a book that said it was okay to lie to infidels. So how well do you think the tribute worked? They used the tribute we gave them to arm themselves to make war on us. Now, I'm the least political pastor you know. Never talk about who we vote for or any of those things. In fact, I usually only vote in presidential and governor's elections. I'm not talking about a political process. I'm talking about us becoming educated. Us learning what is good and what is bad, able to distinguish between the two and taking our stand. Being put between a rock and a hard place and seeing glory for God. Are you all ready to get in the Word? I bet you're going to hear something you've not heard before right here. Go to Genesis 3.19. How many times do you think we've read Genesis 3.19? Yeah, you all talk to me this morning. I'll get my feelings hurt. Hey, Jim, would you slide up here? Thank you, sweetheart. Tell me when you're in, Je- in uh, Genesis 3.19. Getting, getting, getting. In Genesis 3.19, Adam is receiving instructions from God. I'm going to start in the 17th verse. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. You can stop there. By the sweat of his brow, he would eat his food. Did you all hear that? When I say, man, Matthew and I were working, and God, we were drenched in sweat. What is that meant to convey to you? It's hard. If somebody's all sweaty, it implies that there was a lot of effort, a lot of labor. This was a difficult situation, right? God says, Adam, it's by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. 
It's an interesting thing. Sweat. How often do you think the Bible talks about sweat? Right? I mean, you could go your whole life and never hear a preacher talk about sweat, huh? Only two times in all of the Bible is sweat mentioned. But before we get to the second one, turn to the New Testament. I want you to see something in John 4. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food. In John 4, you'll holler out there when you're there. If you haven't noticed, I'm not going to let you just sit and listen this morning. Okay? In John 4, look at verse 32. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What was God talking to Adam about earlier? By the sweat of your brow you will what? Eat food. Now Jesus is saying, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then His disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought Him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. What was Jesus' food? To do the will of Him who sent Him and to finish the work. His food, guys. This is that life-sustaining stuff. You have to eat it or you'll die. When you eat it, it nourishes your body. It strengthens you. The word is edifies. It builds up your strength when you eat it. And what was Jesus' food? To do the will of the Father. Jesus was strengthened and edified and encouraged and made strong in every way by doing the will of the Father. But Adam was told something. It's by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Saints, it is a misnomer. It is wrong. It is a huge miscalculation to think that it is easy to do the will of God. Christians will find themselves between the rock and the hard place all of their lives for one specific reason. This is the place where God's glory dwells. It's between the sea and Pharaoh. Thank you, Piro, for that message last week. Somewhere between Pharaoh and the sea, somewhere between what is pressing you and waiting in hopes of deliverance is where the world gets a chance to see God's glory dwelling in you. It's also a place where you get to see other things dwelling in you. <laughs> right? As long as everything's good, Husband loves me, does everything that I want him to do. He puts roses on my pillow at night and pats me on my back each morning and brings me coffee and says, you're beautiful, right? How hard is it to love husband? Christianity is not this way. It's not. It's full of all kinds of difficult things. If it wasn't, then the lost could do it. We've worked and worked and worked to cheapen the gospel. We've simplified it down to this many spiritual laws or that many spiritual laws or just get to an altar or just get wet or just join a church or just tithe. We've done anything that we can to remove the difficult from Christianity. And as Brother Usto pointed out and Steve tells me every time I talk to him, we miss something in it because the fight is where the life is. It's in the struggle that you begin to feel God moving on your behalf. And if you work your whole life to remove struggle from your life, you miss out on what this is about. It's resistance that makes us strong. It is facing the enemy and seeing God win for us and overcoming it. It wouldn't be much of a fight if you knew you would win when you entered it. I noticed something about young adolescents. They talk about their physical encounters. I was one of them, I know. How often is it that somebody walks up to another human being that they think might beat them up and punch them in the face? It usually does not work this way. It is either an impulsive act, like not much thought given, that's usually where I was, or it's calculated. Oh, I think I can take this guy and I'm going to show everybody. In Christianity, you can count on one thing. You will always be the little guy in the fight because it is not about your strength. It is about the strength of our God. Saints, as we start to get this into us, as it starts to dwell in your spirit, you start to get excited because you realize although you are the little guy in the fight, your big brother is waiting right there to clean up your mess. Oh, how comforting that is. Sweat. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. And Jesus said... My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. Saints, you can expect to sweat doing the work of God. 
Does that make sense to you? What's that imply? It's hard, but you're going to do it. Sweat, I told you. How many times is it mentioned in the Bible? Two. Wow. Let's see. Where was that other one? Jesus in the garden. We better go to Luke 22. I know you have it memorized, but Luke 22 be a good place to read it just to refresh those of your memory who don't have it memorized. There? The left side of the room is not there, though. Right? Get there. Luke 22. Tell me. There. All right. Well, David is there. The rest of you will stare. <laughs> In Luke 22... Look at verse 43. We're going to read this in depth in another passage. So just look at 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish... Is anguish hard or easy? Hard. Mm. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. What was Jesus' response to something that was hard? He became more earnest. Something was hard. Did he back off? Did he squirm away? The harder it was, the more earnest he became. Saints, we need to possess a faith that rises to meet the challenge that is in front of us. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Did you hear that? It's the only place it's recorded in all of the Bible. It doesn't say he sweat blood. It says his sweat was like drops of blood, weighty, heavy, making a mark each time they fell. Now, I'm fully aware that there are medical conditions that can cause this and under extreme anxiety and all those things. It doesn't matter to me. That's not why this is included. You want to know why this is included? Luke doesn't tell you where this is. Isn't that interesting? Luke doesn't even mention it. Thank God for Matthew and Mark. Turn to Matthew. In Matthew 26, we're going to find out about how hard it can be to do the will of God. Anybody want to... Nick, would you write for me this morning? Yeah. Nick's often pointed out people's spelling errors. So I got some special words for Nick this morning. Nick, the first word we went up there is onomatopoeia. No, I'm kidding. Surprised I even remember that word. Are you all in Matthew 26? Okay, good. In Matthew 26, let's start in verses... uh, 36. I'm going to give you some things to write here in just a second. Then Jesus went with His disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to them, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with Him. And He began to be sorrowful and troubled. You think we could call that anguish? Yeah, the two people were talking about the same thing. Then He said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. How many times have you thought or said, what do I do with all this anger? What do I do with this lust that is bound up in me? What do I do with these emotions? What do I do with them? Y'all never thought or said that? I've heard some of you say it, and that's good. You were just being honest. It's what the other people sitting on your left and right wouldn't say. But everybody deals with it. What we do with that determines where we are with Jesus. It really does, and this is where the profound lesson comes. Jesus Himself is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point where it might take a human being's life. Did you hear that? Going a little farther, He fell with His face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from Me. Yet not as I will, but as You will. Then He turned to His disciples and found them sleeping. Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time. Got me? We prayed once. He said, My father, take this from me. If it's possible, if not, your will be done. Comes back, his friends have slept on him. Now he's going to pray a second time. My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may Your will be done. When He came back, He found them sleeping and because their eyes were heavy. So He left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Am I counting right? The third time. One, two, three. Three separate times He goes to pray about this issue. Do you think He's struggling? Have you ever been overwhelmed with sorrow to the point where you thought you might die? I don't know. That's pretty heavy. 
Some of you get a taste of it here and there, though. When you have to take medication or whatever it is, it's because your soul is being overwhelmed, right? I've been there. I know what it is like to put my head between my knees and pray because I thought I was going to have an anxiety attack. The devil is very good at mounting the case. He begins to build and build and build. And it's by the sweat of our brow that we do the will of God. It is hard work. But hard work in the right place is what's important. Watch this. Then He returned to His disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Right at 1, 2, and 3 over here. The place where Jesus is is called Gethsemane. This means the place where olives are pressed. Today there is still an olive grove there. Jews grew olive trees everywhere that they could go. They grew them everywhere. You know why? They grew them on terraces. They grew them in the flatland. They grew them on mountains. Because an olive tree will grow just about anywhere. I picked that in 2004. And it's still not rotten. I put it inside of a Bible and smuggled it out of Israel because you're not supposed to take produce out of the land without declaring it. And it's been sitting here ever since. And it's still there and it's still green. It is incredibly hard to kill an olive tree. The Bible says that your children growing up in the house of the Lord will be like little olive shoots. This is because olives were a big part of Israeli culture, agriculture and life. In fact, you pressed an olive. You put olives between a rock and a hard place. The hard place was the bottom of the press. The rock was the weight you put on top of the, the olive bag. What squeezed out of it was the sweat or the blood of the olive. It was a place where olives were pressed. And where did Jesus go to pray? At the olive press. And what came out of Him? Sweat as if it were blood. He was in horrible anguish, being pressed as hard as a human being could be pressed. And what did He say? Your will be done, Father. And He decided to go to the cross. The first pressing of an olive was for religious or human consumption. Religious use or human consumption. The first time you begin to feel the first weight of a stone, which each pressing, the pressure increases. It's not like we push down with 10 pounds, then we push down with the same 10 pounds a second time, and the same 10 pounds a third time. It increases exponentially each time. How do you think Jesus felt when He came back from praying at the first pressing and friends could not stay awake with Him one hour? You think the weight on Him increased? Yeah. With you in your life, when you come into a situation and you're trapped between a rock and a hard place, if I push just a little bit, what comes out is, oh, praise the Lord. Isn't it good? We can all handle this. Right? But the harder you begin to push, the more you find out what was in the very center of that olive. The second pressing of an olive was for medical use. and soaps, and things like that. The third pressing of an olive was fuel for a fire. This is what you put in your lungs and stuff, and they burned them at night. I want you to see something. You would not want to eat the third pressing normally, right? Because it's less and less pure. You probably don't want to eat the second pressing. It's the first pressing that is the best. What comes out of you when you're first pressed is what you want everybody else to see. The harder we push, though, the less quality is often in the oil that comes out of your life. What came out of Jesus in the third pressing, though? He was tested down to the very center of His And what came out is your will be done. But it was hard. We eat our food by the sweat of our brow. Jesus' food was to do the will of Him who sent Him and to finish that work. This was the hardest thing you could ask a human being to do. But when pressed, this is what came out of Him. Isn't that amazing? When you're pressed, what comes out of you? Turn to Exodus 14. We're going to write some other things up here in just a second, but you can sit down. Y'all going to Exodus 14? Boy, the left side of the room really lags this morning. There we go. 
Exodus 14. Matthew read this, and I was captivated as he read it last week. In Exodus 14, starting in verse 1 through 4, we hear a plan. It's a plan devised by God to put a people in an olive press between a rock and a hard place. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp at Phi Hiroth between Migdol and the sea. Between what? Migdol and the sea. Did God have a very specific place planned? Out of all of the places in Egypt, out of all of the places in the Sinai Peninsula, and all the places in Arabia where they're headed, He could have picked anywhere for them to camp. He picked a place for them to camp on purpose. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. We spend all of our lives trying not to be hemmed in to something that is difficult. We work and work and work to get to places where we are not hard-pressed, and yet the only time good things come out of Christians is when there is pressure to reveal it. I'm going to show you some Scriptures as we go. Every man of God in the Bible that accomplished anything was put in a vice to get it out of him. Otherwise, you would be tempted to think it was by his great strength that he did it. Does that make sense to you? Watch. As we move on through this, it says that they're hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. This is the stone falling down. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Who is supposed to know, after this is done, who is supposed to know that Yahweh is the Lord? No. It's not what it says. It says the Egyptians. God put Israel in a vice so that Israel would know? No. God put Israel in a vice for one reason. He wanted the world to know that He was God. Israel was already supposed to know. But you've keenly laid your finger on the problem. When the people of God are put in a vice so that the world may know, who forgets? The people of God. When we're squeezed on every side, what is supposed to come out is the will of God that the world may know. And yet we find ourselves in the valley going, is God with us or not? We forget. God put us in advice for them to know. What do you think happens when we forget? What kind of picture does that paint? I'll tell you what it does paint ultimately. We serve a merciful God who should have thrown away the people, but He didn't. He kept us. Each one. Look at verse 13. The people begin to grumble as they're put in this vice. They say the same things that you say when you're in trouble. Why did God bring me into this? Or maybe it wasn't God. Boy, isn't that what we hear a lot? This can't be God. God wouldn't do this. God just wants to tell me how great I am. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Just for fun, and I tell you all this a lot, and so far, in the years that I've been preaching, nobody has ever come back to me and said, Hey, I did what you asked. Take a Bible concordance and find the word afraid. You find me a good instance of the word afraid in the Bible and I want to know about it. There are a couple that exist. But the vast majority are God's people saying, do not be afraid. Do what God said. We never admit to being scared. We have bumper stickers that say, I ain't scared. (laughs) We have shirts that say, no fear. And we are people gripped with fear on every side. It cannot be. Fear is the enemy of faith. And you say, but what are you saying? What am I scared of? You're usually scared that God won't come through, but you don't admit it. You know where it shows up? In your pressings. (laughs) It shows up by the furrowed brow, the lack of joy, the walking around ticked off all of the time. That's where it shows up. Galatian church was being pressed. They were being pressed between a hard place and a religious stone for them to convert to Judaism and not even a pure Judaism, a legalistic version of it that God never intended. You know how Paul knew they were being pressed? He said, what happened to you? Who cut in on you? Who's bewitched you? Where is your joy? He saw that they were being pressed and what was coming out was not fit for religious or human consumption. 
By the way, there's a fourth pressing. You know what the fourth pressing is? Nothing comes out of that olive. It's dead. It's not to be used for anything except fire starter. When you're pressed, if what comes out is good, it shows there's life in you. It shows there's life in you. Have you ever seen somebody so beat down they can't even mount a fight back? Yeah, you see abused children like that. They will just cower in a corner. There's no fight left in them. Y'all forgive me for saying it this way. I just want you to know. In my very personal opinion, this is where our denominations are. There's no fight left in them. They have cowered in the corner. Appeasement on every side. We have commercials in this town for the largest churches that are in the United States that don't say anything about Jesus. They are so scared of controversy they don't know what to do. Now, I'm not picking on them. Let's deal with us. But what I'm trying to say is, this is not what Christianity is. We are not called to be the people that are loved by everybody. The Word says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. There is always supposed to be somebody that is upset by what you're doing because God is that way. I think the church was shocked Wednesday night when I read you Revelation 2. Jesus spoke to a powerhouse church in His own day. Do you understand this? In the first century. And said, I know your deeds. And you have a lot to be praised about. But I'm going to come take your lampstand away from you that is the Spirit of God because you've tolerated bad teaching. And that woman who teaches bad things, she's going to suffer. I'm going to make her suffer. I this. Jesus said it. And I'm going to kill her children. That is a word from Jesus to a church in that day that was delivered to the church. And not just her children, the people that were caught up in adultery with her. Do you know why Jesus said He would do it? He said, because then the church will know that I weigh the heart and minds of my people and examine their deeds. Where is that message? Do you think there would be a license for immorality in our churches? Do you think there would be greasy grace if you were told Jesus is weighing your heart and there could be a harsh and heavy penalty? You say, well, Eric, that's not biblical. Talk to me about Ananias and Sapphira and tell me it's not biblical. When we're oppressed, it's an opportunity in our lives to evaluate what is there. And saints, I'm so happy. Some of you are oppressed recently and it's painfully obvious to see. And you responded perfectly. No, you didn't get the test right. No, that's, that's not it. You learned from it and then got it right. Oppressing is an opportunity to go, wow, this fluid is not perfectly clear. It's not what I want. Well, what are these particles in it? That's right. It's pride or fear or, or whatever it is. And you begin to get it right. Thank God He provides this for us. Israel had a chance to get it right too. They weren't just pressed this one time. There's three clear pressings before they even get to the mountain of Sinai. Three clear ones. We've had them over and over in our life. You know why? First Peter says it. Judgment begins with the house of God. And if it's hard, hear me, hard for the righteous to be saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly? If we are struggling by the sweat of our brow to do the will of God and it's hard for us to be saved, what about those that don't even try? That's a rhetorical question. It comes right from Peter to us. They got no shot. No shot. Saints, it's time to get busy working in the kingdom. The thing I like the most about what Brother Piro preached is the reason they didn't eat leaven in their bread is they didn't have time for it to rise. The busier you are in the kingdom, the less time you have for the leaven of wicked thoughts to rise in your heart. Quit looking for free time and get busy. Quit looking to retire. Retirement is not biblical. Now, God bless you if you've had a chance to retire from secular work. You just began your real career, which was working for God. Because nobody in the kingdom of God gets to retire. You work until the Sabbath, and I want you to hear something. You're a kingdom of what? What's of priests. What do priests do on the Sabbath? Your work will never end. Never. Even in the millennial reign to come, you'll just be doing the work of God, but it's easier. It won't be by your sweat because you don't have to strain out all of the junk in the pressings. You're already clean. That's the good news. Quit looking for a vacation. It's time to work. Work in the kingdom. So, well, what is my work? What was Jesus' work? Do the will of the Father. You need to do it. Need to do it. Amen. What were we talking about? Exodus. Exodus 14. 
Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see deliverance. Stand what? Oh my God, how pleasing it is to stand next to a brother who does not have shaking knees. Most of you have seen that movie Gladiator, hadn't you? There's one scene that ought to grip you. They're about to go out to battle for the very first time. And one man is chained to another one who is so scared that he loses control of his bodily functions. You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? You don't want to be chained to that guy and be a Christian. So scared of battle that your knees shake. You begin to give way. Press just a little bit and found to be totally lacking in every area. Saints, it's time to prepare for war. You say, well, where's our war done? I think the ladies talked about this. You pray through in prayer. What did Jesus do with this sorrow? He took it to the throne. What did Jesus do with the most difficult struggle of His human life? He took it to the throne. How many times? As many as it took. It just took three. What do I do with all of these feelings? You take them to the throne. Say, but I tried and it didn't work. Try again. But I'm trying and I just can't stop. Do it again. Do it until it works. Unless you're the one human being that God's Word is not true for. You'd be surprised how many people will fight for that. Oh, it's just the way I am! Oh, well. Maybe God didn't know how you were designed. The Word had a disclaimer in it. I just missed it. It must have been in the foreword of the Bible. It said, for everyone except you. Why do we fight to justify our lives? Why not instead fight equally as hard to be conformed to the image of God? Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see deliverance. The Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Oh my God, I wish we had that promise. Eric, if you can get anger under control this time, you will never see it again. Wouldn't that be nice? No, He left wild animals in the land to keep us humble. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moshe, Why are you crying out to me? When God asks a question, that's a pretty profound thing. Don't you think? I mean, God knows already. So why is He asking this question? He's asking it for His sake. Moses, examine yourself. You're being pressed. I put you where I told you I would put you. Pharaoh on one side, the sea on the other. And what is coming out of you? Why is this whining coming to me? Oh my God, I spend too much of my week whining. Right? You ask somebody, hey, how are you doing? I've got a pint of fluid in my lower back and my knee hurts. and my. Come on. I've known Christians that we all had a secret covenant not to ask how you were doing. <laughs> Praise God, that particular person I was thinking about got healed. He said, what infirmity was he healed of? A bad attitude. And that's the worst physical infirmity you can possibly have. An attitude that is used to defeat. That is used to whining and complaining. That is pricked in the heart and moved, but never does anything about it. Jesus' will, Jesus' food was not to know what God's will was. It was to do it and finish it. How many times do you sit in church like this and Jesus begins to prick your heart and you know, oh, I need to do this. And then you walk right out of here and forget about it. It's not enough to know the good that you need to do. It must be performed. It must be. I sat at dinner with friends last night and told them, I stand with this feeling in my gut. I'm going to stand before Jesus and I don't believe it's the award ceremony everybody's made it out to be. Because Paul has warned me. I give an account for everything done in this body, whether good or bad. Friends, there's been a lot of bad done in Eric's body. I am worried about that. You say, well, we're saved. We're saved. Yeah, I do not want to be the only naked guy in the millennium having passed through the fire with nothing to show for it. More than that, I'm pressed with concern for Christians that are entrusted to me, that so many times we just take this too lightly. You know, the word that Peter said to a human being, quit thinking about it being a story. Think about it being you. Right? i give you five seconds because it shouldn't take any longer than that. You think of a sin that is plaguing your life. You ready? One, two, three, four, five. Now, you've just confessed it to me, right? And I'm Peter. You like that? I'm Peter. He looks right at you and says, pray and perhaps God will forgive you. 
Did you know that those exact words appear in the book of Acts? When's the last time that was preached? There should be a certain fear in us mixed with this love that goes, God is awesome and He's merciful and He's there when I need Him and He'll help me and all of those things. But if I don't do my part, which is to find His will and eat it like food, I should be scared. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's missing from the church. It's been preached out of us. And it shouldn't be there. When pressed, when you hit this pressing three times, it's an evaluation period in your life. God has been kind enough to let His judgment begin with us. And why did He put you in the vice? He put you there so the Egyptians would know that there was a God. Here, He says, I want to gain glory. I want to gain glory. Look at Exodus 17. You only have to turn a page. In Exodus 17, we have a very hard rock. Deuteronomy 18.15 calls this a hard... 18.17 calls this a hard rock. The Psalms call this a hard rock. First hard rock cafe, right here. We're in the middle of the desert and the people of God need substance. And the only thing that they have is a hard rock. And this question keeps coming up. The question is verse 7. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? When we're in the olive press because we don't have a grasp on the idea that we were built for pressure, that we were built to be put between the rock and the hard place, this demonic thought sneaks in. says, maybe this is not the will of God. Maybe I'm being squeezed because of my own sin. Right? No, I'm the only one ever thought that. Is the Lord with us or not? It doesn't matter why you're in the press, saints. It doesn't matter whether your sin got you there or the perfect leading of the Spirit. It doesn't matter. If you're being pressed, it's so that the Egyptians can see there's God inside of you. That's what they're supposed to see. Quit wondering about how you got there, why you're there. Rejoice in it. This is why James says rejoice in your trials. It's a chance for the world to see. But the people of God have to quit asking, is the Lord with us or not? We have to quit asking that. We have to decide. Either we were purchased by God or we weren't. What part of purchased by God is negotiable? My lamp never looks at me and goes, you know, I don't know whether you own me or not, Eric. I'm going to go get in my car and drive it 400 miles almost as fast as I can get away with. And it's not going to argue with me. It belongs to me. Why is it that when we get in trouble, we go, is God with us or not? Maybe He left us. How many times did He encourage us? He told Israel and Jesus told us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. But in the press, we're convinced He's not there. He said, no, I'm not. I know He's with me. Then act like it. Jesus is in a boat with disciples, right? Storm. Save us, Lord, we perish. They forgot who was in the boat and you do it all of the time too. Say, well, all I can do is pray. You evidently don't know who you are. That's like saying all I can do is drop the atomic bomb. That's like saying all I can do is go in and destroy all of them. I mean, that's the only option I have. Poor weak me. All I can do is pray. Prayer's where you should start. Jesus, could He do something about the problem that He had? Oh yeah, more than 12 legions. But what did He do? Prayed. It's not always right to do what you can do with your hands. In fact, God got mad at David for considering a census. David looks and goes, hey, you know, I need to get an idea of how ready I am for battle. God didn't want that. That's not where battles are won or lost. He wanted him simply to be in tune with God. Mm. Mm-hmm. Turn with me to Romans 12. Let's get this one out of the way. Because of the time change, I feel like I have a whole extra hour. Is that pressing you? (laughs) Hard Rock Cafe. I'm sorry, that was cheesy, but it had just come to me right then. Oh yeah, brother! David's not going to let the left side of the room down. Nick, it's time to write again. Three pressings. There are three distinct ways you know what the will of God is. 
Some of you ladies who were blessed by my wife's teaching the other night should know these. If you don't, you talk about grace, here's a second opportunity to write them down. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. How do I know what God's will is? Number one, submit the members of your body to Christ. Just put number one, submit. You can put it over there where people can see it. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Second one, do not conform. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Third one, be renewed. What happens then? When you submit your whole life to God as a spiritual act of worship, and I don't mean to say it submitted, I mean you go through the laundry list. Lord, are my finances in order with You? Lord, is my emotional life in order with You? Lord, is my sexual life in order with You? Lord, is my relationship with my neighbors in order with You? You go through all of that as if you were about to take communion because you're supposed to live in communion with God all of the time. That's step number one. When everything that you know about is in order with God, then you begin to look at the influences around you that are trying to push you to make decisions in certain directions. You refuse to conform to the image of this world. All of those thoughts, but what will happen with my boss? But what will my kids think? What will my wife think? What will pastor do? Whatever it is that is pushing you. If it's not from God, it's called the world. Third, Get into the Word about your subject. Read it. Give Him the opportunity to show you from His living Word, active, sharper than any double-edged sword, Piro taught us. Give Him a chance to be the living God that you say that He is and speak to you. It first requires you to submit. Second, to cast off the pressures given to you from the world. That means it's hard to hear from God while you are totally ticked off. It is hard to hear from God while you are shaking your knees in fear. It is hard to hear from God while you are depressed. It is hard to hear from God while you are totally overwhelmed with sorrow. Not impossible, because He's merciful, but it is harder. Submitting and not conforming help that. Begin to renew your mind with the transforming power of God's Word. And then what's this next word say? Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When you're in this vice and you get the thought, is God with us or not? Take a break and do Romans 12. Wait, am I submitted to God? Not was I when I got here. That's not the point. Am I submitted to God right now? What are the influences of the world that are pushing on me? Exclude them. They don't have a right to speak into your life anymore. Then begin to get into the Word and give Him time to speak to you out of it. And then, get this, the things that come to you, you will be able to test and approve of what God's perfect will is for you. Is there an accept your name in here? There's not, is there? But Brother Hagen or Brother Osteen or Brother whoever, they saw a vision of God. And God picked up the cell phone and called them and woke them up at night and talked to them for four and a half hours. That all may be, and it'd be wonderful. I hope it happens to you. If it doesn't, this is what the Bible says that you do. Now, here's the big one. This is the hard one. You've tested. You've approved of what God's will is, right? Right? You've gone through this process. Now, quit debating it. Move on in faith. Trust Him. Move on in faith. You're being pressed on every side? Maybe it was just the first pressing. Felt like the third, but it was the first. Just because the pressing doesn't stop doesn't mean it wasn't God's will. After you've made the decision, quit thinking about it. Just do it. Have you never set out to bless the holes that are trying to sell a house? I imagine a thought that they have to struggle with occasionally is, is God in this or not? Just like when I started a church and nobody showed up, I thought, hmm, is God in this or not? And I was blessed. I had some real close friends that were religious leaders that said, no, no, He's not in this. What would that mean for you guys? That was just one more pressing. It took me an opportunity to wait. Am I doing this for you? Is my life submitted to you, Lord? Submission to God. Secondly, don't conform to the world. 
It's amazing. The world can speak even through religious leaders. Thirdly, what does the Word say? And what kept jumping out of the Word for me, for my life, was about the life-changing power of God that He wanted to plant in Sugarland. So you know what? Eric does not consider anymore, not ever, whether or not God is in his church planting. You understand what I'm saying? You move on. Can y'all say amen to that? Make your decision and move on. God is able to make it work. You can sit down. You want to learn some more or you want to quit? Go to Luke 18. How many times were sweat mentioned in the Bible? Twice. The first and last Adam. Give you another unique one in the Bible that my wife has already eloquently taught about to you ladies, but it's just not fair that y'all get that kind of teaching and the men don't, so we're going to share it again. In Luke 18, starting in verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Have you never read parables and go, what on earth is this about? The kingdom of God is like a net let down into the sea and it caught all kinds of fish and pulled them on the shore. The kingdom of God is like yeast. Wait a minute, I thought yeast was bad. The kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet where they send out invitations and you are left to figure out what the interpretation is. Can you? Nobody relate to me? Right? You ever read a vision and gone, golly, what does this mean? I was so happy when I found out that Daniel explained his own visions because I spent an hour trying to figure out what it meant and then read the next paragraph. I love Luke. Luke is going to relate to us a parable and he tells us in advance why. Isn't that great? I'm going to tell you a story and this is why I've included this story. And why was it, saints? So that we would pray and not give up. So that we would pray and not give up. Yeah. So that we would pray and not give up. None of us want to be thought of as quitters. None of us want to say, oh, we gave up on God. And yet we sow those seeds out there in faith. I know God can handle this situation. And two hours later, we are so unsure that God's going to handle it, we are petrified with fear. We're calling everybody that we know saying, oh, what do I do? How can I fix it myself? Let me take a census of my life. We can't. This is maturing time. It's maturing time. And you know what? Pastors got to mature too. My biggest pressings come from your lives. I spend more time than I should wondering if you're going to make it. Now, it'd be a whole lot easier just to put a doctrine out there that says, no, no, they gave a commitment. They committed themselves to Jesus. Of course they're going to make it. But I know better because the Word teaches me better. So I spend more time than I should worried about whether on that day you'll be standing beside me or not. Jesus had to speak to me. He said, they will stand for I am able to make them stand. Out of Romans 14. Brother Matthew comes to me occasionally and says, oh, you're not allowed to carry that burden. That belongs to Jesus. You understand? We're all living this. I just want to get it right. Amen? Amen. The blessing is in this struggle. This is where God gains glory for Himself. This is where the blessing is. The blessing is not in coasting. It's not in prosperity. It's not in any of those things. The blessing is in the middle of the fight when the rocks are flying, but the giant begins to fall. That's where the blessing is. That's where God gains His glory. We have to quit looking for a way out of those fights. You know how many times in my life I've gotten the prophecy, there is a mountain in your way. There is an obstacle in your way, a giant boulder. I see it. It's like a wall. I get all of these beautiful descriptive terms of the problem as if I don't understand it. But then comes the revealing of Eric's heart. You're looking for a way around it. You're looking for a way under it. You're looking for a way over it. And God says you will go through it. I've got that prophecy probably ten times in my life. Now that I've told you, you'll all be scared to prophesy it to me. I understand very well what my problem is. I don't like resistance any more than you do. But I found out it's what keeps me healthy. It's what keeps my eyes on the prize. It's what keeps me from having time for leaven to grow in my life. The blessing is in this struggle. You understand? Okay. Where did I tell you to go? Luke 18, right? Then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor feared man. That's ironic. You know what a judge's two responsibilities are? To fear God and care about men. 
His fear of God will cause him to make right decisions for the men that he cares about. So what is this really? This is almost like satire. This is an ironic situation for the purpose of the hearers going, oh, he's trying to make a point, right? This means, I, I would say, there was a certain NBA team who had a person who was two and a half feet tall and couldn't jump or dribble, right? You'd go, oh, I, I get it. This is an allegory. That, that's what he's doing. Do you understand? In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea. Why a widow? This is the lowest member of society. We have a judge who doesn't care about men and then an unimportant woman coming in the setting of the day. Grant me justice against my adversary. Who's the adversary? How does she want justice? Don't know. Don't know. You know why? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what your adversary is. It doesn't matter what the predicted resolution is. Doesn't matter. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I fear God or care about men, the audience is laughing at this point in Jesus, yet because you keep bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And, this is a comparison and contrast. We have an unjust judge who cares nothing for God, cares nothing for people, and yet he makes a righteous decision for the lowest in his kingdom. Now, how much more will God bring about justice for his chosen ones? You are not widows in the kingdom. In the kingdom, it works just the opposite. The lowest members of society become those of the most value to the king. Not only is God not the unjust judge... You are not the widow. God is a just judge and you are a chosen son in the kingdom who cry out to Him day and night. Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. (laughs) Now, if we were going to have a problem with a word in the text as inspired or not, you might debate quickly, huh? The same words used for how soon Jesus is returning. Near. (laughs) I just found out God has a little different perspective than we do. And you know what? We have a different perspective in this time period than we did a hundred years ago. Let's think about this. Nick says, I'd like a hamburger. Mom says in the year 1800, no problem. I'll get you one quick. What is quick? Well, I've got to go kill a cow. I've got to grind up the meat. I have to knead flour, all of those things. How quick? Maybe we could do it in four or five hours, right? Today, Judah asks for a hamburger. What is quick? As fast as you can order it, right? You understand what I'm saying? These are relative terms, but it will come just when you need it to. Watch this. However, the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Why does He ask this question? When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? God has put you in a situation where you are being pressed for the purpose of the Egyptian seeing that He's God. Settle the issue in your heart whether God is with you or not because as long as you are not sure He will come through for you in prayer, as long as you're not sure that He's answering you and living like it, you're of no benefit to Him in this human drama. And what He is wondering of the people He tells this to is, God is so much better than an unjust judge and I value you so much more than an unjust judge would a window. But do you really trust Me? And when I come back, will you live like this is true? The same question is here today. It really is. When Jesus returns, will He find that in the pressings of your life, you trusted Him? Or will He find that you ran and hid and were scared and did everything you could to get out of the olive press? I get frustrated sometimes about the talk. And you all know that. Oh yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Sure, until it rains. You know? Until it's hard. What Jesus is looking for is trust demonstrated in actions. That's why I told all seven churches, I know your deeds. And didn't say, hey, I know what you believe. I read your doctrinal statement. I've been to Missouri and saw your headquarters. Beautiful. He doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't care about it at all. He's examining our deeds. You know what we need to do? Examine our deeds before He does. Judgment begins with the house of God. Do you understand? It begins with us so that we can get it right now, although it's hard. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 14. 
Proverbs 14.23 says, Hard work brings a profit. Mere talk leads to poverty. The irony is he's not talking about money. Hard work in the kingdom yields a profit for God. Mere talk will make you poor. Those churches in the book of Revelation said, Hey, dude, you think you are rich, but you are poor, blind, miserable, wretched, naked. Hard work is how the kingdom is advanced. Don't think it's strange when a trial happens to you, James said. You understand? Okay. Psalm 14, or 114. Let me tell you this before you get to Samuel, or while you're waiting for me in Samuel. Psalm 114, verse 7. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. God puts His people in a situation where you see nothing but hard circumstances so that you know where the water came from. He puts you in device so that what comes out of you is clearly God or you, one or the other. How do you make it God, not you? You settle the question in your heart, is God with us or not? And if He's with you, act like it. Then when you're squeezed, what comes out is godly. Amen? Amen. First Samuel 14. You all there? Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the path at Michmash. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Isn't it funny how some sit in the shade while others go to work? Why do you think Jonathan didn't go get Saul? I mean, he's just sitting in the shade. There are a few that hadn't prepared their hearts, so they're useless in battle anyway. The mere sight of them only encourages the enemy. Don't be one of those. Don't be one of those. Be somebody that your brothers and sisters can count on. Amen? I love Steve with all of my heart. And one of the things that I love about him is there is a vast difference between the two of us in age. There's a vast difference between the two of us in the way that we were raised and our occupations and all of those things. But we have the exact same heart. You know, he says all of the time the things that are rolling around in my heart. And I really don't question. There are times we have questions about what we are capable of and what we're not. There's never a time, though, that I question his desire to be with me. Does that make sense? Never a time I think he would rather be laying in the shade than working with me. That's what you want to be able to say about everybody. And we can say it about most of you. I mean, we really can. What these last few weeks of hardship in different areas have proven is that our church knows how to take correction and apply it and find life in it. That's so exciting. And when everybody gets on that same page, this will be an unstoppable little unit. In fact, it won't stay little. I want you to think about something else. I realize some of them are related to it. Well, all of them are related to us. In fact, all of you are related in one way or another in here. That's just how church works. Same, same was true in the upper room. Same was true at Rhoda's house when Peter came and knocked on the door. They were all related. But people are gathering 400 miles from us to listen to what you hear every week on a blurry television screen through Internet audio. This is precious, saints. But it doesn't seem precious to people if we don't act like it. We don't show up for church on time excited. If we don't enter worship excited. If we don't carry what we've learned here through the week. Have you ever wondered why the people at your job aren't asking you about your church? Is that silence effective? (laughs) You learn to do that in sales. I'm sorry. Okay, so... Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. (laughs) The ones that are sitting in the shade are always the best equipped too, aren't they? Hmm. You can have all the armor on on the outside and not have the heart right on the inside, can't you, Brother Piro? You remember a guy we called Prancer? (laughs) He looked like a football player. He dressed like one. But the thought of contact scared him to death. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Oh, now we're dressed like priests too. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. What is Jonathan and the armor bearer, what are they going to do? 
confront the enemies of God, right? On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. They have a little narrow road with a cliff on either side of where they're going. One was called Bozus and the other, Sina. Bozus in Hebrew means shining. It's a word that is intended to convey glory. They're on a little road, a little bitty narrow path on the way to where God has told them to go. And on one side there is glory, a shining. What was on the other side? Sina. You know what it means? Thorn bushes, cursing, suffering. Everywhere that God would call you to go, there's a cliff on either side of you. A little narrow road that we walk on called the way, the way that Jesus walked. And you have to pass right down through the middle of both suffering and glory to be useful to God. He's looking for the opportunity to put you into that narrow space where flesh has to fall off that He might be revealed. He's looking for that opportunity. You should be looking for that opportunity too. That's where you'll find yourself in the will of God. There's one more scripture I'm going to read you and we are closed. You don't have to go there. I won't lie to you. Not this late into a sermon. In the beginning I might, but this late into a sermon I figure I've preached myself under conviction. No falsehoods from the pulpit. Hear this. Would you say that olives are hard-pressed? To get water out of a hard rock, that's a difficult thing to do? Yeah, I would say so too. In 2 Corinthians 4-7, the Apostle Paul, who knew a little bit of hardship himself, wrote the following words, and this is what we close with. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Clay, how strong is that? Not very. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. When did you find out Jesus was the author of life in an undisputable way? When He was pressed on every side by death and what came out of Him was the life of God. People will see life in you when they see you pressed on every side and yet life is being revealed. Settle the issue whether God is with you or not. Give your life the Romans 12 test and then be willing to be squeezed for Jesus. You were made for the rock and the hard place. That's where all the glory is. Stand up. Let's pray.